This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Naz and Wally Sports Hour, heard Sunday mornings at 9 on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. From hockey to wrestling, football to golf, no sport left unturned. You're listening to the Naz and Wally Sports Hour on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Good morning, Naz. Good morning, Wally. The boys are back. Let's talk sports. Good morning and welcome to the Naz and Wally Sports Hour. I'm your host, Walter Rigabon. As usual with me on the line, Naz Marchese. Good morning, Naz. How are you this morning? Good, Wally. How are you? Good. Uh, let our listeners know with the whole hour, we, uh, we interviewed Ron McLean uh, the other day. It's taped. Uh, runs almost the entire hour. Naz, uh, really quickly, uh, uh, before we go to it, uh, your thoughts on the interview. Really like to thank Ron for his time. It was quite interesting. He has a lot of stories, and uh, he he's a very very knowledgeable guy. He certainly is professional. We had uh, we had a good chat with him, um, and uh, without further ado, uh, going to turn it over to our producer uh, Brandon. Run the interview, and Naz and I will have a couple of minutes at the end to uh, some uh, some parting thoughts. Uh, enjoy. We're pleased to welcome to the Naz and Wally Sports Hour, uh, Gemini Award winner, host of Hockey Night in Canada, the incomparable Ron McLean. Good morning, Ron. How are you this time? Great, Naz and Wally. And you and I were just talking off the air, uh, Naz, about awards. And uh, you mentioned those Geminis, as uh, Grapes used to describe them, the Jamamas. Or you know what they were called. <laughs> we were actually nominated together, Don and I, years ago. And I thought, oh, good, I'm going to ride his coattails to my first award. And we lost to Bob Asumi's fishing show. <laughs> I'll never forget how mad he was and said, well, that's it. Don't nominate me for any of those stupid things, those Jamamas or whatever you call them again. So. Anyways, Ron, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to, welcome to Zoomer Radio. Uh, we're, we're thrilled to have you on. Obviously, uh, circumstances uh, in our communities these days uh, uh, aren't the greatest, but the spirit of, it, spirit of optimism always uh, uh, reigns supreme. Let our listeners know how, uh, uh, how, uh, how you're dealing with it. I, uh, you know, we're all watching your show in conversation. Uh, you haven't stopped working, so uh, bring, uh, bring our listeners up to date on Ron McLean and uh, what you're up to these days. Well, you mentioned it. That's one of the things uh, that we've created. As in, you know how everybody's just desperate for content right now with no sports. Uh, Rogers Sportsnet, we're kind of up against it, so we're making things up on the fly. And it's actually been a lovely little exercise, uh, especially when I move outside the hockey realm. You know, I interviewed uh, the lead singer of the Lumineers band, and that was really uh, just a heartening interview. He's a good friend of Tyson Berry, the defenseman for the Toronto Maple Leafs. That's how that all happened. And I'm going to interview Lindsay Vaughn because she's a fiance. Wow to P.K. Subban, so just to talk downhill or alpine skiing with Lindsay will be, uh, you know, you, you want to talk about facing death. Uh, that's what those downhillers do, and, mm. um, you know, obviously our frontline responders are doing work that's way more important, but they still have that element of uh, confronting death uh, and, and risking it all when they do their job. So she's in that, uh, actually Mark McMorris was like that, the snowboarders, a few of those have that death-defying uh, high-risk career and I think during a time like this, those interviews are, for me, uh, quite valuable to, to, to pluck and to learn from. Really quickly, before I turn it over to Naz, you're, uh, you're sort of the 
meat and a sandwich today, Ron. You got uh, you got Wally on the left and Naz on the right, and uh, we'll be uh, we'll be going from side to side as we go along, trying to do this remotely. But uh, in conversation, I've watched a few of them run. Uh, great show. Uh, obviously, you're a master of the craft of interviewing, and uh, we all aspire to uh, anybody who's in the interview business. All aspires to. Uh, to have some of your talent, um, work in, uh, obviously you're on Sportsnet, that, that's easy, but uh, you're taking advantage of social media these days, so uh, people can find you in, in various channels, so just let our listeners know where they, when and where they can tune into In Conversation. Well, I can assure you uh, the social media outreach has nothing to do with me, because that's a, that's a battle for me always, but it is on the web at sportsnet.ca. There's also a YouTube channel, so you go to youtube.com slash sportsnet to find it, and it's on Facebook, which I don't do, but uh, that's a great vehicle for us, and uh, they're taking excerpts of the interviews and running them on Sportsnet One on the weekend, and then Wayne Gretzky and I are not to drop names, but we're also doing a little series of classic broadcasts that air on the main Sportsnet channel, so that is somewhere I felt, uh, you know, like there's a lot of uh, our viewers uh, with Hockey Night in Canada who would not be doing Facebook necessarily. So you, to, to do a show for for them, I think, on uh, on those platforms is a bit, you must know that. It's, a, it's always a, a, a challenge to figure out what medium is easiest uh, and what has the best reach and even even how you approach what you're doing. You know, we found out really early with the In Conversation series, I hate to say this, but because we're all Zoomers, but if you're not, you know, under 50, nobody clicks on and watches. Uh, the kids, of course, uh, connect to a different uh, hero. So that's, these are all the challenges as we go through the, the process. Well, Ron, uh, you um, uh, got discovered, I don't know if I want to use the word discovered in Red Deer. We do uh, uh, generally on our shows when we interview uh, people of uh, of your caliber, and I'm not, you know, I mean, uh, take that in, in, in the nicest way possible. Uh, um, you know, we've had John Shannon on the show recently. We've had Don on the show recently. We had Stephen Brunt. Uh, the nature of our show is we, we always like to uh, talk about how people got started in their careers, especially uh, uh, gentlemen like you have had such successful careers. And uh, John Shannon was so instrumental in 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 your career. Uh, I don't know if if this is myth or if this is legend. Oh, that's that is absolutely true. I I always sort of attribute uh, what success I've had because it is a miracle. When I, especially when I go back and look at some of the early broadcasts, and as I mentioned, I was a deer in headlight. Uh, it takes so long for one to just be themselves to be comfortable and i had huge anxiety uh, right through the early part of my radio career in red deer to calgary and on to toronto so battled a lot of those uh, demons that make you kind of stiff and rigid in your approach and anyway uh, john believed in me for whatever reason he he brought me down to calgary i was a dj i was the sportscaster i was the red deer rustler broadcaster uh, as host and color man imagine i was like 19 years old doing color on junior hockey but that's what I did in Red Deer. It was kind of an all-in-one job at CKRD, and I had a great mentor there, a gentleman named Wayne Barry, who always taught me, let the guest be the star. That was his main advice. He had a, a lot of great uh, universals. He, he knew how to communicate one-to-one. You don't say hi, everybody, or hello out there, or hello, Canada. You speak one-to-one to a listener or a viewer. He, he taught me everything. Uh, he, he really is the guy that was instrumental in giving me a, at least an idea of what I was doing. And then John Shannon, uh, miraculously watched me doing the weather in Red Deer and he, he saw that often I would have to fill doing the weather and I would resort to uh, predicting sports outcomes uh, instead
instead of the weather when I had to fill a little bit. And so he knew I had a bit of an ad-lib capability, and he invited me to audition for the job in Calgary. And there again, uh, you know, I was stiff. Um, and I, he somehow believed in me enough to, to give me that job at Calgary in 1984. I worked two years again with a great mentor, a gentleman named Ed Whalen. And from there, you know, he, he said, he told me to pick up the phone when Dave Hodge moved to Vancouver for a job at CKNW Radio. John Shannon phoned me and said, Ronnie, you call Don Wallace down in Toronto and tell him you're interested. Uh, and that's how it happened for me. I, I phoned out of the blue this uh, Don Wallace. And again, I go back and watch my early work and, and even some of my recent work. I'm not to say I've grown a, that much, but you know, you, you, you can easily pick out your flaws when you're in this racket. And I could identify mine readily. But I think everybody, you know, if nothing else, uh, the radio career had given me the ability to handle counts, time counts, which is a, kind of a golden skill in television where everything's moving 100 miles an hour and they need you off in eight seconds. And that was the one skill set that not everyone has that for whatever reason gave me the inside track. Ron, you're a broadcaster and a referee, level five referee. Um, which do you like best? I love playing hockey more than I love refing. Barely. <laughs> uh, but I, I do love... Uh, I wanted to be a teacher, you know, Wally and as my, my goal in life was to teach. I had a number of teachers in school that I, I really uh, thought the world of. So I, I loved that idea of learning and teaching someone to appreciate learning. And refereeing is like that. When you're on the ice with two teams, highly charged, especially junior hockey, they're, you know, kind of at a phase in their lives that's quite different, 16 versus 2021. 20, um, I, I just thought it was the cat's meow to be out there and try to help to create a playing field that was fair and to uh, encourage uh, everything about it. You know, as I go through uh, some of the things that have happened to me in my television life, and there's a, you know, a lot of slings and arrows, as Don would say, uh, thank God I refereed. Because in refereeing, you were there with a, a purpose that was actually quite noble, but you were always the enemy of half the audience. Uh, so <laughs> you learn to get used to that criticism. Uh, since since Naz segued us into the into the topic of refereeing, uh, Ron, uh, you actually got the opportunity to referee one NHL preseason game. I understand it was back in 2006, and a uh, little bit of controversy at the end of that game. Apparently, you called a late penalty on Jean Leclerc that didn't go over too well. No, uh, it was a chintzy call. <laughs> I, I, John is 100% right, and I'll never forget Sergey Gonchar really giving it to me, and Brooks Orpik and Mark Recchi, and I can tell you that just about half the Hall of Fame was on my case for what was a lousy call, I have to admit. But it was it was in a day, if, you, if I could defend myself somewhat, where they had just had a Brendan Shanahan's hockey summit to try and open up the game, and they were trying to eliminate obstruction from hockey, and that meant no more hooking and holding or obstruction fouls or restraint fouls. And so in the spirit, and I'd been kind of critical of this initiative. I felt they were overcalling the games and that they, you know, they had gone from 12,000 power plays one year to now 18,000 the next with this new uh, crackdown. And I didn't like it. I, I felt that the game should be policed by the players a little more and let them rock and roll. And so in the spirit of all that, I agreed. Uh, Colin Campbell, senior VP of the NHL, invited me to referee with Steve Wacom, and I agreed to do it as sort of a truce or a, an olive branch. And I went with the, the spirit of this new crackdown and called that terrible penalty with a minute to go. Preseason game. I wouldn't have done it in a regular season game, I can assure you of that. But it was a funny moment to hear, you know, pro hockey players, I just listed a name, some of the who's who of the NHL, coming over hot, really hot, at a call with a minute to go in the last preseason game. So that tells you how competitive they are. 
Uh, Ron, I, I have a standard question I use, which uh, I always uh, think that it gives me a little insight into uh, uh, a, a, a guess uh, worldview in, in certain ways, or how they uh, how, how they uh, how they felt about certain things when they were younger, and how it shaped them. And uh, I've asked this question recently of Peter Mansbridge, of Stephen Brunt, of David Keon. I'm going to ask you, who are your heroes and when you were, let's say, around uh, a, young, a young lad, mm-hmm. uh, whether sporting or otherwise, and who were your mentors? I definitely looked up to Jacques Plante, the hockey player, without knowing a thing about him. He, he had retired and then returned to the NHL, first with the St. Louis Blues, and they were kind of a charming story to make the Stanley Cup three years in a row under Scotty Bowman with Glenn Hall and Jacques Plante in net, imagine. So I, I was smitten with his story of the mask. I wrote to him as a boy, and he wrote me back. I, I love that he was the first to indicate icing to his defenseman by raising his arm. First to wander, first to do a lot of things. Uh, so that's that's one, you know, it gives you kind of an indication of I liked the inventor. So we we were I was a child of uh, the later '60s when we landed on the moon, and that was yep. a big deal to us. And I was a child of the convention that elected Pierre Elliott Trudeau, and that was a big deal. We didn't have uh, the Annex satellite wasn't in the sky when my father was stationed in the Yukon Territory. So we would get everything on TV off tape, but the radio was our conduit to a live experience. And I listened to Trudeau get uh, nominated uh, for the leadership of the Liberals, and and then, of course, he was Prime Minister. A big moment in my youth, and uh, my mother was and my father keenly politically uh, astute. Uh, so I, I really remember that as being a seminal moment. And I told Peter Mansbridge back in 83 at the same Civic Center in Ottawa. So that, that first Trudeau nomination uh, happens in 68, and it's right after Martin Luther King has been assassinated. It's early April of 68, and I think uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on the 4th, and the uh, Liberals did their thing on the 6th of April. I listened to that as a boy, and I was wide-eared, if that's an expression. And then I, I saw Peter Mansbridge and David Halton anchor in 1983 at the same Civic Center in Ottawa where Trudeau had once been nominated, Brian Mulroney. And that was a four-ballot nomination, just like Trudeau's was crazy. Uh, and David Halton and Peter had to fill endlessly. And it was just the two guys on camera, just like Grapes and me doing Coach's Corner. No cutaways, no fancy editing or special effects. It was just two men trying to explain for two days how this was going to go down with David Crombie and uh, John Crosby of Newfoundland and Peter Pocklington and obviously Brian Mulrooney and Joe Clark and a, a star-studded cast trying to win the Conservative nomination. And Peter told me a great story that, you know, after the third ballot, when it looked like Mulrooney was now wedging towards winning, he saw Brian Mulrooney off the riser and he stepped down off that platform that CBC was using at the Civic Center. And he said to Brian Mulrooney, he said, Brian, it looks like you could win. If you do, I know you'll have a million people to thank and things on your mind, but I would really appreciate it if you would step up onto the riser where David Halton and I are sitting. Just for a quick interview for the CBC, that would really be great. This is 1983. And he said, I I did the interview. He did. Mulrooney won, and he did step up right away. And he said, you know, Ron, that got me the job as anchor of the national news. But what people don't know is it could have cost me my career. Because three times in the interview, I called him Brian. I didn't call him, you know, leader of uh, the liberal or the conservative party elect. I didn't call him Mr. Mulrooney. 
I did just what you never do as, as a news journalist at the CBC. I got cozy with the guy, and, and it could have cost me my career. Had anybody called me on it, but nobody did. So that's, a, that's an amazing thing for me. And Mansbridge, all those leaders, uh, whether it was Dave Hodge or Ward Cornell or Peter Mansbridge or Nolton Nash or prior to that, you know, whoever it was, Lloyd Robertson, uh, they, they were the ones I looked up to. Ron, you just segued me into my next question when you talked about Ward Cornell and, and Dave Hodge. Uh, 1986, I think you're 26 years old. And this call must have come out of the blue because nobody expected uh, the pen, the infamous pen flip, uh, Dave Hodge pen flip, and uh, uh, he either resigned or got suspended or whatever happened. He ended up in Vancouver, and you got a call. Well, I was already there. The only the only thing yeah. that people don't remember uh, is that. Dave had already moved to Vancouver at the outset that season. Okay. So that happened during the briar. The the pen flip happened when, <laughs> the story goes, Newfoundland and BC were playing in the semifinal on a Saturday afternoon in curling, and they cut away to the NDP convention in Ontario, where Bob Ray would get elected. So these, these nomination uh, things are a big deal. But anyway, Dave Hodge was already there, and I was already in Toronto anchoring Hockey Night in Canada that year, because Dave was out in BC, oh, okay. and whenever the Canucks had a home game, he would host at the Pacific Coliseum out west. So it, it wasn't so much that I got the job, but then I inherited, obviously, the uh, the gig, if you will, as as the principal host of Hockey Night in Canada following the pen flip. And that was just, I, you know, Dave's better to tell his own story, but I think Dave was just sick of flying in uh, every weekend. He was He was going Monday to Friday on CKNW, a huge operation, and he had switched from the afternoon drive, which he had been initially hired to do. He had now been moved over to Al Davis's morning shows, and I think Dave was just strung out and, and decided not to make, almost like, again, Grapes is better to speak to his own story, but Grapes could have healed this little thing that happened uh, back in November by simply apologizing, you know, and going along with the boss's demands, and he was just at a stage now, too, where he just didn't feel like doing that, and both times it's left me, you know, once in a great position, although still, you know, people were really hot. They didn't like that Dave Hodge was let go for those reasons, and I was the guy sort of inheriting the chair, and so I had a big, you know, scarlet letter on my forehead uh, as I began my career, and I had to carry that sort of same, and I'm using the metaphor, and I don't mean to, you know, obviously it's a fairly serious metaphor, uh, but I, I kind of carried the same badge of, uh, you know, scorn after Don left in November. How serious of a responsibility did you consider it taking over host of Hockey Night in Canada? Because for, you know, Hockey Night in Canada is just not a television show and not just a sporting event. Uh, I think it's a cultural institution or has been for most of our lives in Canada. And all of a sudden, you're the most prominent figure at a very young age. As Dave was. Well, but, but as he, Dave he was. seemed to be, you know, uh, he had a level of maturity and uh, our gravitas that I did not possess at 26. Anyway, I, I mean, I saw that and I understood that, but I was also, uh, you know, kind of like the backup goalie thrust into the role. You were just going. Um, as I say, I had done some hockey nights that year. Uh, Grapes and I seemed to have a great chemistry, um, which was nice. Uh, anyway, I, I, I just look back and I, I, I do know my work was rigid. It was far from perfect. Um, but, but some of the technical elements I could handle, and, and I guess I just, I don't know that I believed in myself, but I kind of did. I, I, I'd grown up as an only child, uh, completely in love with hockey and broadcasting, and uh, so... It almost felt like it was meant to be. Every every time I moved into the sports business, 
it was because somebody picked up the phone and phoned me, not the other way around. Never once did I apply for a job at CKRD in Red Deer as a DJ. I got called. And never did I get, you know, the idea to go to CFAC in Calgary to do the Flames. It was John Shannon who phoned me. And I did pick up the phone to phone Don Wallace, I'll admit to that. Uh, but there again, I mean, what were the odds they would say, you you know, we're going to go with the 26-year-old here. And the reason they did, uh, this is a, a story I do know for a fact, is that uh, the two most likely people to replace Dave Hodge were Brian Williams and Brian McFarlane. But they had a discussion within the offices that, you know, that's going to put them behind the eight ball. There's not a chance that they can take this job. They're older in their careers. Uh, people aren't going to forgive whoever takes that chair. So better to throw Ron to the Lions and uh, or Wolves and, uh, you know, see if we can groom him because we think he has what it takes. And he won't be as good as Brian Williams or Brian McFarlane at the get-go. But it won't matter, you know, if the Pope is in that chair right now, people are going to be hot at that person. So I, I kind of benefited from that. That was a fairly neat thought. And it was Jim Huff, young Jim Huff, Ted Huff's son, who had that idea and was able to sell it. Ron, who was your favorite hockey team growing up? Toronto, for sure. Mom was a huge Habs fan, so I, I loved the Leafs. And you mentioned Dave Keon. I was a huge Keon fan. My my favorite players, though, were Mike Walton and uh, Jim McKenney. And, uh, yeah, the... They all both played on a great Toronto Marlies team in uh, yeah, 1964. I think I, I, I loved the flamboyance. You know, Trudeau yeah. had certainly hooked us with his. Uh, so, you know, they always say show business is a mix of talent and charisma. And if you can have both, which is rare, uh, you know, I, I think that's that's the, you know, what I saw in a couple of those guys. Okay, we'll take a b- quick break here. and We'll be right back with Ron McLean. It was a rainy day when Pizzaville introduced contact-free delivery. Order and prepay online and choose contact-free delivery. The driver will place your order on your doorstep in a nice, clear, protective bag. Then he'll politely stand back two metres and call the number on the receipt. Once you answer the door, he'll give you a little toodaloo and off he goes. Contact-free delivery from pizzaville.ca or the Pizzaville app. There are two ways to argue sports with these guys, and none of them work. The boys are back, the Naz and Wally Sports Hour on Zoomer Radio. We're in conversation with Hockey Night in Canada's Ron McLean. Doctors, nurses, and frontline health workers are certainly in the uh, front lines and um, doing miracles these days. And there's a particular particular doctor, a 42-year-old doctor, as he then was, in the ER department. Right at Oakville Trafalgar Memorial Hospital, who in some ways uh, in your in your life and in the life of your wife, Carrie, performed a miracle. Um, although, it, you know, it, it, he, he utilized all of his skills um, basically to save your wife's life. And I think in the current environment, why not shed a little bit of, uh, a little bit of light on, on the great work that uh, our doctors do. Um, would you care to share that? Oh, of course. I mean, it's the, without a doubt, the, the moment I'll take to my grave is the greatest thing I ever saw happen. Uh, it's the greatest piece of work. Uh, that, day, that night I was playing beer league hockey that Carrie had a pulmonary embolism, a massive blood clot to the lungs, which she was 50 years old when it happened, and the mortality rate for 15 over for pulmonary embolism was 100%. Nobody survives them. And as Dr. Mangesh Enamder is his name at Oakville Trafalgar Memorial Hospital here in Oakville, the old hospital, we now have a new one. Uh, he's still working there, though, with the new one. 
Mangesh saw Kerry come through the door and he said, I saw death coming through the door. And they put her immediately on what they call the big guns, which are two massive intravenous uh, bags of, uh, of a chemical used to mitigate the pain when the heart gives, gives out. Uh, and then he went to work trying to figure out what her situation was. He couldn't get her to a CT scan because she was so critical she was dying. Uh, he had to decide, is, is it an aneurysm? Is she bleeding out? Or is it the opposite? Is it a clot? And uh, she's suffocating from a lack of oxygen. And there, she wasn't presenting properly, and he had to do a number of diagnostics on the fly, including, you know, the tree of, of questions. Plus, they had a portable uh, ultrasound machine, which showed an enlarged uh, aorta. And that was a beneficial to making the decision it was a blood clot and not an aneurysm and a bleed. And he uh, worked with uh, six nurses and another doctor, uh, he called for a treatment called a thrombolytic, and I'll never forget him standing at his computer trying to think, how can I make this thrombolytic uh, drug treatment, which is a mix of warfarin and heparin, and I don't know all that goes into it, but he had to figure out how to make this happen fast, because Carrie was going to be dead in a minute to two. And, uh, you know, that's he, he has told me, Mangesh, that now for the doctors dealing with crashing patients, as they always do in ER, to try and do it with this element of isolation and uh, safe keep, safe distance. You know, now I, I walked into a room with two doctors and seven nurses working on my wife. Now you might get three doctors, uh, well, sorry, three people, and then the rest would have to be behind plastic walls, you know, kind of waiting to come rushing in because you're trying to prevent the COVID thing. So... What a life, uh, and what a what a moment, you know, uh, to, to sit there and watch this all happen around me. I was holding a, a little blow dryer that blew warm air into a foil blanket to keep Carrie warm. She was throwing up violently, and I was collecting vomit. And there was there two nurses with defibrillators. There was a nurse with an ultrasound, portable ultrasound. There was a nurse inserting a catheter. Uh, it was incredible. She had nine uh, intravenous uh, needles in her arms. And uh, can you imagine being the the architect or the engineer to, to you know order everybody in the right way to do the job? So that was Dr. Mangish Inepter. Uh, I'm sure uh, there's there's innumerable stories over the course of uh, over 30 year career, almost 40 years on Hockey Night in Canada, uh, and we can't even barely scratch the surface of them. But there's one story that I, I just listened to recently that just had me in stitches. And I think our listeners would love to hear this story. Uh, it was, was a story I wasn't aware of, but 1999, the, it was the seventh game. Oh, it's a good the, Aval- the Avalanche and the Dallas Stars, and there was r- some real big concern that uh, the ice wasn't going to make it through the game. If, if you can tell that story, I think our listeners will get a great chuckle out of it. Well, we were just... Don and I had just finished our third round series, which was the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Buffalo Sabres, and Dominic Hasek and the Sabres won it in five games. And so Grapes and I were, you know, back up to Toronto for supposedly the long weekend off. And I was really looking forward to it because we were about seven weeks deep into the playoffs and we were exhausted and couldn't wait to barbecue at my own house in Oakville and have some beer. And Anyway, the phone rings and uh, producers at Hockey Night in Canada said, hey, uh, Ron, you and Don, looks like there's going to be a seventh game in the Colorado-Dallas series. We'd like you to go. If Colorado wins tonight, we need you guys to go down to Dallas for game seven. All right. So I pick up the phone. I phone Don. Hey, Don, if Colorado wins tonight, and naturally they did, I said, you and I got to jet down to Dallas for the seventh game. And so we do. And we arrive on the day of the game into Dallas, Texas. And Don goes to the hotel to pick out his you know, tie to go with a green suit. He had a crazy green lime suit. So that was an all-day job that he had to do at the hotel while I went to the rink. 
When I arrived at Reunion Arena, Scott Russell, who had been anchoring that series, said, hey, Ron, the big story here is the ice, the relative humidity. It's not the temperature, although the temperature is wicked. It's like 140 degrees on the tarmac outside the arena. But the relative humidity is up in the high 90s. And if it gets above 98, they don't think they're going to have good ice, if ice at all, for the seventh game. So I've got a device, Scott Russell says, it's called a Humidex. And you just press the red button and it indicates what the relative humidity is in the building. And if it's 98 or above, it's it's critical. So I go on the TV at 6.30 local time or whatever it is, and then, good evening, welcome to Game 7, Dallas Stars hosting the Colorado Avalanche. And uh, as you may or may not know, we have a heat wave in Texas. Temperature on the tarmac just outside the arena proper is 140. And inside the rink, it's hot. But that's not the big problem. The big problem is relative humidity. Dan Craig, the expert ice baker, has been flown in. And I'll, I'll press this. It's called a Humidex. I'll press the red button on this device, folks. And if it happens to read above 98, we are in serious trouble. So I press the red button, and it's 99% is the relative humidity. So I said, what that means is that the ice won't... Uh, won't take. Every time they put a flood on, it won't adhere to the current uh, ice surface, and we are in for a really tough night. They may not be able to complete this game uh, because of the bad ice. So Dan is trying to do what he can. He's chilled the ice a little more. He's put ventilation ducting into the uh, roof of the building to try and move the air. They've got all the Zamboni uh, vomitory doors shut. They've opened the back doors of the building a little bit to allow for circulation of air. Uh, crazy the precautions they're trying to take, but we're really concerned about the conditions of the ice. And then I throw to a feature on the great Rocket Richard. And as soon as I throw to the feature, the commissioner of the NHL, Gary Bettman, comes roaring after me, and he, Ron, why do you have to be so negative? And like, I just got off a plane like an hour and a half ago from Toronto. I'm thinking to myself, well, he's right. When I think about it, I am kind of being negative. All I'm talking about is bad ice. But I hadn't really thought it through, and I went with kind of the flow of the story being told that day. And anyway, Batman and I argue hammer and tong like two panty roosters for about five minutes. I'm saying, well, we wouldn't have to worry about it, Gary. If it wasn't the second week of June, would we? And back and forth we go, and that's that. Now I go to the little dressing room where we're going to do the coach's corner in the first intermission. And Don Cherry is sitting there with Alan Clark, who is the uh, head of CBC Sports. And I said to them, I said, oh, boy. I said, Bettman wasn't too happy with me talking about the bad ice. And Don Cherry says, oh, is that right? He says, uh, would you like a coffee? Just got some fresh coffee here. I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, Don, I would like a coffee. And so he pours the coffee, hands it to me, and that's the last we talk about it. Boom. Now we're on the coach's corner that night. And as always, Don Cherry starts. He says, you know, Ron, a little something before we get rolling here. You're such a wise guy. Everybody knows wise guy. He knows everything. Well, here's one thing you didn't know, Ron. We're down here in Dallas, Texas. Did you know they have more professional hockey teams per capita in Texas and the United States than they have anywhere in the world? No, you didn't know that, did you, wise guy? And here's another thing you didn't know. The ratings on ESPN, Ron, for this series are the highest ratings they have ever had in the United States in hockey broadcasting. You didn't know that, did you? Oh, no, yeah, wise guy. And I bet you didn't know this. They just came out of Denver there the other night, game six. That was their 350th consecutive sellout. Of course, I made hockey in Denver. Anyhow, 350 straight sellouts. Bet you didn't know that, wise guy. And I'll tell you another thing, Ron. We're sitting here tonight. We're all excited. It's a Saturday night. You got Joe Sackick, Mike Banana. You got Patrick Waugh versus Eddie Belfour. You got two great teams, seventh game for the right to go to the Stanley Cup on a Saturday night. Long weekend in Canada. Everybody's in a good mood. Except you. <laughs> oh, no. Ron McLean, weatherman from Red River, got to stand there with his stupid little thermometer and try and ruin it for everybody. And as soon as that coach's corner ended, as you know, in comes the commissioner, Gary Bettman. Thank you, Don. 
Thank you, Don, very much. And I just, I always remember it was, he had me, I knew he had me grapes, and uh, I always laughed at that stuff. Well, I did, at least I laughed at it after about the third or fourth season when I kind of figured out the gig. Uh, uh, since, you, since you brought up Gary Bettman, uh, uh, that leads me to, uh, uh, that must have been one of the few times he uh, he complimented you. You've had a, you've had a... Oh, he complimented Don. He was happy with Don. That was actually the start of the trouble for me. You know, that, that was a sort of a seminal moment in our breakdown because, it, I mean, the labor relations obviously was the, the reason we were always at odds. I, I didn't believe in the in the owner's position on what was fair market value, but that horse is out of the barn. Uh, 2005 lockout ended that. So there's nothing really to, to argue about now. Most of the rinks have good ice and the labor thing is over. So. Yeah, you, you, you've had a pretty, uh, I would call it tempestuous relationship with Batman, but I compliment you because you, you give no, he's a, he's a tough guy to interview. Uh, and, uh, you, you've, uh, you've certainly done an admirable job in, uh, in uh, butting heads with him over the year, the 2010 interview was was fairly memorable. I had an opportunity yeah. to review that one, and um, you worry that it's like you know we always say, are you coming at it in uh, in a state of ambush? You know, you worry about that. It's such yeah. a hard um, situation because if he is representing ownership or late, uh, management, I should say, uh, someone has to be the voice for labor. But it's so you know, Gary is very you know. Uh, he's definitely an in-charge kind of individual, and if you're challenging him, he's coming back fast. He's, he's extremely quick on the uh, on a, as am I. So the two of us yeah, are kind no, of no bad. question. Yeah, that's that's kind of a challenge when we're together. But I I always try to emphasize to Gary that it isn't a personal attack, and it is a, a compliment to the position he's in. Uh, that you know he gets these questions, and I know he can handle them. You know, <laughs> so I just. I, it's a, it's been an ongoing crisis my whole career. Is you know, I think even now for for Sportsnet and Rogers, you know, how do you be a good partner? And I I always kind of in the back of my head understand that. Look, Ron, if you want to be a journalist, go work at the Athletic or go work in you know some other realm. But I, I do say to myself, I don't know how you two feel. I think the strength of the show, you know, we pay for the rights to the show uh, as much as the game is the thing. It's all part of it, uh, how you present um, and how you give the viewer what they want. Uh, and that's a challenge. You know, I, I don't want to lose you know a little bit of that edge uh, because I think it's important that your covenant ultimately is with the audience, not with uh, who pays and who receives. Right. You, you, you interviewed him uh, last week on you interviewed Gary Bettman on in conversation last week. And. Uh, um, you know, obviously talking about how things are. Sh- Actually, I got, after watching some of your earlier interviews, I've got. It, it seems like both of you guys have mellowed over the years. Uh, it was, it's actually a, a great interview, Gary Bettman. If you were to assess him, um, uh, I mean, he's been commissioner since 1994, I believe. Uh, his strengths and his weaknesses. Well, he definitely is. Uh, I mean, he won the lockout. The, the the 2005, it took a long time. He came on in 93, and kind of his express purpose was to do what he did in 2005. But he got it done. And, and it was, uh, you know, for the owners, it was a, uh, a stunning victory. And and I, I've always said, again, not to get myself into more trouble, but I've always had a feeling that collective bargaining between ownership and players is a ridiculous, uh, you know, it's the law, and, and it's a system that has been created by the law. 
but I don't I don't think it's fair. I, I just don't think the players have a shot. I think they're they're shut out from their game. If you're asking them to sit two years in order to try and battle with billionaires, it's just to me it's an unethical approach to the whole thing. But never mind that. I mean, what he did create was parity. Uh, what he did create was some cost certainty for the smaller markets. Where I have an issue with that is that you know you can have teams linger in Phoenix or South Florida puts a drag on revenues, and those drags on revenues are ultimately uh, taken care of by the players with their escrow uh, arrangements. So it's a, it's a, he, he did an incredible job, Gary, uh, as agent to the ownership. Uh, he has been good for the game. The game is in a good place with the uh, footprint. It's in a good place with its television deals, I think. It's in a good place with its rules, and, and that Shanahan Summit, even that, uh, you know, if parts of it broke, bothered me. Uh, I have to confess the game is at a far better place in terms of more skill, less fighting and all that. So Gary's done a, you know, he's done a great job of all the things. The the only criticism I slightly have is that I don't think uh, taking away fair market value for the players um, created a great push to to grow the game's revenues. You know, they've kind of fallen a little behind the NBA, the NFL and the Major League Baseball in their different programs. They, they have different ways that they've grown. Uh, but the growth, I think, you know, doesn't benefit necessarily from capping salaries. That That's the only thing I question, but it's not, you know, not a point that I would uh, you know, want to die on a hill over. Ron, and do you think they're going to be playing this year? I think they will, yes. Uh, and I, I'm probably uh, back to my 26-year-old naivete there, but I mean, none of us knows, as, as we all understand uh, innately, the doctors will make this decision, the Center for Disease Control, the World Health Organization, they will determine whether we're back. But I think I think uh, there is enough uh, happening in a good sense that by the time we need to make that decision, which would be, I mean, they can start the playoffs in July. They can actually start the playoffs in August. Uh, so we have time. And I think, you know, I feel like we're seeing some headway uh, in flattening the curve and winning the war of, uh, for now. I, I, with that understanding, I think as Doug Ford said, you know, the worst of the Spanish flu wasn't the spring, it was the fall. So we do have to be careful. But I think there are ways to quarantine the players without fans in the building and create a television spectacle that we would all enjoy. And that I think there's such a pent-up desire for, for those who are, you know, really faced with their livelihood is in jeopardy. Uh, there is a need to try and reopen North America uh, in addition to balancing, you know, the, the health concerns. So because there's that push to, to reopen uh, North America for so many people who need it, uh, this would be a, a very symbolic gesture to bring back the NBA and the NHL. Uh, before we get into the obvious uh, Don Cherry discussion, uh, hometown hockey, Hockey Day in Canada. Um what do they mean to this country? I mean, you. Uh, what does it mean to Ron McLean more more so? Well, going to these small uh, smaller towns, smaller venues where hockey, in some ways, is still a religion, isn't it? I think it's just the uh, you know the nicest thing that I've been able to be a part of. I grew up again, a child of the wide world of sports, of Peter Zosky's Morningside. Uh, many traveling shows have succeeded, whether it's Rick Mercer, Wayne Rostad, um, still standing. Uh, so you know, there there's such a value in reflecting. Uh, people to one another, never mind Canadians to one another. I'm not a big nationalist, but I do love uh, I do love the lens being put on the right, uh, the backbone of the game, the right uh, folks, uh, if you will. Uh, I just think it's a great education. I think it's a, a just, I, I learned so much. Tara Sloan is a joy to work with on the show. Um, I think, you know, we're after uh, something far more important than, you know, I always say Hockey Night in Canada will always be what it is. 
Um, but I think the Sunday show, Rogers Hometown Hockey, has a chance to be the most important hockey show because of, of what it does to elevate people around the game. And, and, and that sounds like, you know, self-serving. But if you think about the Humboldt Bronco uh, experience, uh, same with Colby Cave. We just lost Colby Cave of the Edmonton Oilers to uh, an aneurysm. Um, the, well, it was a cyst on the brain that worked like an aneurysm. Uh, the, these uh, examples of what's good about hockey, uh, that tragedy illuminated what the president, Kevin Garinger, the coach, Darcy Hogan, the captain, Logan Schatz, the entire Bronco organization, the 13 that are living and the, and the families of the 16 deceased. I just feel so good about what hockey means when I think about the Humboldt Broncos. So Humboldt and uh, and the Rogers hometown hockey experience for me are kind of linked and uh, and a very important one. So that's how I feel about that for sure. Ron, uh, in the few moments we have left, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about um, your partner for so many years on Coach's Corner, Don Cherry. Uh, we got the opportunity to talk to Don a few weeks ago. At, at uh, we didn't really chat that much about the events in November at his request. And we were, you know, we were happy to stay away from that topic and we don't want to get into any great details of, of what happened in November. But the reality is when I Google, I don't know if you've ever Googled your own name. When I Google Ron McLean, uh, Don Cherry comes up beside your name more often than you can possibly imagine. You were partners for so many years. It didn't happen. Uh, the exit wasn't uh, what anybody would have liked um, right. it was an unfortunate circumstance. The politics of it, uh, enveloped the issue almost immediately. You were vilified and you were praised at the same time. And vilification probably came depending on what side of the political spectrum you're on and praise always also came, uh, perhaps from a different side of the political spectrum. Looking back on it now, is there anything you would have seen other than obviously Don apologizing, uh, anything other that you would have seen you would have preferred had been handled differently? Um, not really. I mean, I, I think had, had the opportunity, I would have, I've often said, I wish I would have been able to get to Don's house on Sunday because it happened on a Saturday and the decision was rendered on Monday and I was busy with hometown hockey in Welland. Um, that, that is a regret I have that, that maybe, you know, I could have talked Don into the apology that that's, uh, but I don't know about that. And, and uh, you know, maybe Don was, you know, I don't know what he said about it. Or I, I know he says, you know, his basic take is he did what he had to do and I did what I had to do and we're fine. He knows I was always, you know, with the left-wing pinko, we always joke. Um, he, he knows my politics, my ethics, more important. You know, this was, a for me, it was the larger community calling us uh, in the hockey community out. And that's not easy for uh, hockey fans to reconcile. Um, I think, you know, that that's probably the challenge that I face going forward. And, and, you know, I've had to really sort of thank God I'm a referee and say, okay, well, you, you are detested for that call, but did you do it for the right reason? In your opinion, that's all you can do. And it's, it's hard to relive. Like, you know, I, I, I've sat now six months defending myself, apologizing for myself, explaining myself as one does, because I'm in journalism, and it would be unfair to, you know, swat away the questions and take an elitist approach of, uh, I, I, I'm above this. But it, it's a really interesting place in which to find yourself, and to, to have to sort of walk, you know, the walk uh, is, uh, it's been a great, it's been a yeah. great lesson, you know, a great uh, experience uh, in, in being disliked, but, you know, knowing why you have to be disliked to do what you do. But the, you know the, the the reality is you were in the reality is you were in a no win situation. Um, For sure. You didn't start it. 
you had to react to it. And, you know, unfortunately, I wouldn't say unfortunately, but, you know, you're, you're, you're on live. I know what it's like to be live. You've got a lot of things you got to deal with. So I'm not going to be critical of what happened. Oh, that, that night I was just trying to hope that it, yeah. it, it, it went away, right? I, I, I mean, Don had just paid homage to two young boys who had died, one of suicide in Welland. Uh, and then, of course, he did his uh, Remembrance Day. That was not the time to tangle. Uh, that yeah. was not the time to say, you know, you're a bad person. Uh, and I just, I just didn't recognize the gravity of of what went on in the in that short window between the two uh, young children who had passed and their families and what this had meant to them. And that's, you know, we all know this is what's so, you know, upsetting about it all is that they, there's so much good that has been forsaken for this point of principle. Uh, and that's a challenge. That's a, you know, the the world is. Uh, you you've been around long enough to know and see. Yep. You know, if you can go through the 60s uh, and, you know, civil rights and uh, FLQ in the 70s and, God, how many other uh, situations of political, you know, weight that, uh, you know, people, as you said, we, we will come down on it ultimately through the lens of their political beliefs, I think. Let me let me throw this at you, Don, then I'll turn it over to Naz. Um, uh, my only regret, uh, not personal, but regret in what didn't transpire here, and it, it seems to be a comment on the world that we live in today, is that somebody makes a mistake and there has to be immediate uh, consequences, immediate. And it doesn't give people time to think things through. And it seems like if somebody slips up and says something wrong, that there has to be an immediate rush to judgment. My sense is if they had allowed this to to sit for a couple of days and let you know let cooler heads prevail, maybe Dawn could have come around and said something that would have perhaps um, bridged yeah. the gap. Your thoughts on that, Ron? Well, you know, you put me there in the position, Wally, of having to second guess Rogers. Right? They they yeah. they ultimately. I, I can't even imagine. Uh, you know what it was like at their end. I don't. I don't have a sense of that. I, I do know that it reminds me of the referendum in Quebec. Is another great example of you know it went fifty one percent, and when when it goes fifty one percent, that is not a strong position, right? And I think that's kind of probably where it fell here. I would say within hockey circles, it would have been you know eighty to hundred in favor of Don, in in civic uh, ethical circles and bigger picture circles, it would have been maybe the other way, but not not as pronounced perhaps. I don't know that, and I and I don't know what uh, you know what it was like in that thirty six hours at Don's house. You know that's uh, that's hard for me to know whether whether there was an appetite to to, to step back from it uh, and circle back. I I do agree. You know I think I think the wisdom, but but there comes a point, right? There there comes a point. Uh, you know, in, in ethical decision making of right and wrong yeah. that uh, you know you. you it's a complicated one for me to know the answer to, uh, and I don't profess to know the answer to it, as I said, even in my address the, the week after the fact. Um, but I, I think, you know, the Churchills of the world move, uh, and, and, it, and it's like they take all that that time uh, and they stomp on it, <laughs> and they act. And that's, that, it's, a, it's, a, it's a study for another day, and it's, it's not fair, as I said, for me to get in the middle of trying to second-guess either Don or uh, Rogers. Um, I, Fair I, enough. I just know that you know I fell in the middle of it for <laughs> sure, and it's given me a great uh, deal of pause to reflect on. Uh, Ron, what was your memorable sports moment ever? Your most memorable sports moment, Ron? 
Oh, I, I would say, uh, for whatever reason, I always come back to Marianne Limpert's silver medal swim at the Atlanta Olympics in 96. It just is the, it's the only time I can remember uh, kind of being emotionally uh, just overwhelmed, uh, standing on the pool deck at Atlanta and seeing a, a, an only child from Fredericton, New Brunswick, almost win the gold and should have won the gold. The Michelle Smith of Ireland was a known cheat. So yeah, that's a, I, I always cite that as a, and I, the only other thing close is when I went to Luzhniki Ice Palace and stood on the ice, and you know, in the crease where Paul Henderson swatted home the winning goal in '72. Uh, I would put you know those two moments for me as uh, as just great moments of appreciation for for a life lived around the game. Ron, you're always you're doing a great job of segueing me into the next <laughs> into the next question. Anyways, we're I know we're running short on time. We want to give you a few minutes for you to uh, collect your thoughts because you've got something else to get onto. So we're not going to take it right to the last second. So we'll we'll keep you for another minute, minute and a half, two minutes max. Um, let me rapid fire a couple of things to you. Sure. Should the following be following people be in the Hockey Hall of Fame? John Shannon. John Shannon would be a great uh, builder. Yes, uh, Paul Henderson. Paul Henderson, automatic. That 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 is to me the the most unbelievable oversight uh, of them all. I mean, he is absolutely either as a player or as a, or as a builder. He 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 has meant more to the game than just about any player in there. Now I'm really going to put you on the spot, Don Cherry. Oh, automatic. God, that's not a look, Don. I love Don, and you know, Don used to always say as he watched TV, and people would say, "Look, I love Don, uh, but but <laughs> here comes the dreaded button." I don't even have that. You know, I, I would have, uh, I would have been like, I, I kind of liken it to uh, Bobby Clark and Phil, uh, Alan Eagleson or Wayne Gretzky and Bruce McNall. Uh, there are a lot of people who stand by the person who had to go and pay the price you know uh, that's yeah. kind of where i found myself i love don to death and, and, and i think you know we mutually love each other and we miss beer and nibblies and i could go on down the list but anyway in, in the case of what was said we had to apologize so i, I couldn't keep us from our own uh, you know having to do our own penance i felt that's just and, you know, I, that's just and i'll i'll finish off this one and naz and i will finish off one. there's a fourth one we'd like to add that but we won't ask you we'll just say ron mclean should be on that list too no question about it that's really nice. Yeah. Anyways, on that note, uh, Ron, we're just going to say thank you so much uh, for taking the time for us. Thank you for some uh, – it's been a fascinating hour, and uh, you're running a really busy schedule these days. We will keep watching you on In Conversation, and we hope we see you back as the host of Hockey Night in Canada as soon as possible. Well, listening to the list you've got of guests, I'll be listening and watching you too. <laughs> so keep up the great work, Wally Ness. Really Thanks so much, it. Ron. We really appreciate that. Thanks so much. Take good care. Yeah. Bye. That was our interview with uh, Ron McLean. We hope you enjoyed it. It was taped earlier in the week. Uh, Naz, uh, you with me? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. <laughs> when you're doing these shows remotely now, you never know. Uh, uh, you're trying to juggle a lot of stuff. I've got Skype. I'm getting messages on my computer from our producer. And uh, you never know when you're going to lose anybody. Anyways, uh uh, enjoyed. Uh, I certainly enjoyed the interview. Um, I know. Uh, I know we will be. Uh, we will be praised by some people. By uh, for uh, uh, obviously uh, having a chat with Ryan McLean. There will be other people who will be very critical of us because uh, uh, some people felt we should take the opportunity to be uh, very critical of, uh, of of Ron in terms of the Don Cherry thing. Uh, I I. 
you know, I was I was sort of uh, not angry at Ron. I've, I've never been angry at Ron. Uh, he was caught sort of in an impossible situation. Um, I'm, I've sort of uh, mellowed a bit since November in terms of my thoughts on the whole incident, and now my emotion tends to run more towards sadness uh, that a great partnership uh, ended, uh, a, a partnership on the air ended in that fashion. I, I'm, I'm still strongly of the belief, I've mentioned it on the show a few times and mentioned an interview with Ron, I think it's also commentary on the world that we live in, that when somebody slips up, there is zero tolerance. Uh, I know there's the argument that that uh, Don has said some, you know, he has a, ha- a pattern of these things. I, I think that's overly strong. He was on the air for 35 years, or a few that he should, you know, rightfully criticized for, rightfully criticized for what he said on that Saturday night. But in the world that we live in, there is zero tolerance, and there's a rush to judgment. And nobody wants to take the time to think about things. And if you don't make immediate decisions, you get criticized for that, too. And I think that's unfortunate. I think with cooler heads, this thing could have played out in a different way. Um, they could have bridged the gap between between Dawn and Sportsnet, and uh, it could have had a better ending. Uh, your thoughts, Ness? Yeah, Wally, he didn't hold back. He answered all the questions. Like, he didn't hold anything back. He told it like it was. No, no. And that was know, the answer. You know, he's, uh, you know, Ron, you know, Ron is a play, was a player's interview. We've been doing this for five and a half years, Naz. And he's, uh, you know, when you get, when you get people like Ron, when you get people like Peter Mansbridge, when you get people like Stephen Brunt, the amazing part about those guys are those are the best interviewers in the country. And if, if people think that interviewing is an easy thing, you know, when you interview somebody like Ron, you, you realize the, the professional that you're dealing with. And you're talking about someone who's at the very top of his craft. And I call it a craft. It, it, it's a skill. And it, it's uh, uh, any way you want to put it. Uh, you want to be a great, there's good interviewers and there's great interviewers. Whether you, uh, and Ron McLean's at the very top. And it's amazing how what I've found over the years is when you're interviewing the guys that really at the at the top top like like Ron and Peter and uh, Stephen Brunt and, and and so many others, man, it's a pleasure being on this side interviewing people like that. It's an absolute pleasure because the interview just flows. They're professionals. Uh, they're gracious. Um, and guys like this, Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame caliber people like Ron McLean and Peter and uh, and Stephen, you know, they take the time for us and they treat us with respect, answer every single one of our questions, and um, and just a pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure to deal with people to deal with. Um, that's a, probably the best way I can describe it. Naz, the clock has struck ten. Last words. Stay safe, everybody. Another week to go. God bless our frontline healthcare workers and all our essential workers. Thank you for joining us this morning. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back again next Sunday morning. Have a great week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.